Take your Bibles if you would. Now, I got, uh, I got two places we're going to be this morning. The first one's going to be Psalm 133. Then we're going to dive over to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we are in a study out of the book of Philippians right now. We have taken uh, every summer, we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, our summer series. And so this year we are doing the book of Philippians. We're entitling the series Joy Ride because Paul writes, uh, though he's under house arrest, chained 18 inches from a Roman guard, 24 hours, seven days a week. He writes with just this attitude of joy concerning Jesus and the church and the Christians in the city of Philippi. And uh, so we're, we're looking at the joy of the Lord. The Word of God says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, we're all agreed right now. We could certainly use some strength right now, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, in every way. And so we're looking at this idea of the joy of the Lord as Paul presents it through Ephesians. So last week we wrapped up chapter 1. Uh, today we're going to begin with chapter 2, but we're going we're gonna to get there in just a moment. Um, we have uh, unprecedented times that we find ourselves in right now in this moment of time. We're all aware of that. I think we can all sense and see that there is uh, a rise of dissension and division. Uh, within our within our world and and particularly within our nation right now, you know what I love about as a teaching pastor being able to take books of the Bible and just go verse by verse through them is uh, one I always know what next week's sermon's going to be. I'm not I'm not sitting around stressing all week. What's a word from God? What's a word from God? No, I know next week we're going to pick up in verse five of chapter two unless the Lord directs me in another direction. But the, the re main reason I really appreciate it is God's Word is so relevant. So we're studying the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians was written 2,000 years ago, and yet it's so real and relevant for us right now. This whole Everything we covered through chapter 1 concerning joy uh, has been so relevant for this season. Today we're talking about unity, the joy of unity. And one of the things that's happening with this device or with this uh, contention in our nation and in our world is that the enemy, Satan, is, is creating a great division among us. Politicians, uh, pol okay, so politicians are always divided, but I mean, it's, it's gone to new levels. Uh, the experts, the scientists, the medical field, there's great division there. One says one thing, one says another. There's, there's division uh, within government leaders, local and, and state leaders. There's, uh, there's difference, you know, uh, there, there's division and divisiveness uh, among families that's happening. Some falling on one side of, a, of an argument, some on the other side, and there's great division there. There's all this contention, and I have to say, church, that we are not immune to it as the body of Christ. In fact, the enemy is creating division all across because here's, here's the truth. And this was brought up Friday night in, in the uh, Kelsey and Austin's wedding that, that Ecclesiastes, God says, two are better than one because they have a greater return for their work. A cord of three strands, it says, there cannot be easily broken. And so if, the, if Satan can unwind families and separate them into pieces, then he can, he can work his, his work and his attack more powerfully. If he can unwind the cohesiveness and the unity of the church into three or four separate strands, 
then he's got an easier prey to work his, his works of, of demonic influence. So the enemy's working overtime, and if we're not careful, even as the children of God, followers of Christ, we could find ourselves uh, manipulated with a spirit of disunity. So this is not because there's any disunity I sense in our church. I, I do know that we all uh, fall in different categories of everything that's happening around us in different camps of thought, but, but I know the enemy can, can work in a moment, in a time like this. But what's cool is it just happens to be the next set of verses that fall in line with our study through the book of Philippians. So it's like God's saying, look, this is timely. This is, this is for all of us. And so uh, we want to talk for a moment this morning about unity and creating an atmosphere in which the enemy cannot have this opportunity to just uh, rapidly advance against the work of the kingdom of God and stop the kingdom of God. I told you last week, um, that I am convinced Jesus is returning one day. I'm more convinced now that it's sooner than it, than, than it will be later. Um, I think all of this is a part of how all of that unfolds. Uh, we see it through the scriptures. We see it in the words of Jesus. We see it in the book of Revelation. Um, and if, the, if God's kingdom is about to be established on this earth, with the return of Christ, you have to know Satan is going to fight that. He has fought everything of Jehovah God's plans from the beginning. He fought them in the garden with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. He fought them with the prophets. He fought the plans of God uh, with the, uh, the apostles. He fought the plan of God with the early church. He's fought the plan of God all along, and he will fight the plan of God all the way until his final destruction when Christ comes again. So we have to prepare ourselves. This idea of unity is powerful. It's not only powerful, it's critical. Paul, who wrote so much of the books, so many of the books of our New Testament, his main thing, the thing Paul wrote about the most was the topic of salvation. Paul was a soul winner. And he wrote more about salvation in Christ than any other topic. Do you know what the second, top, second most written about topic by Paul was? Unity within the church, that the salvation that Jesus offers to the world is connected to a unified church that is in agreement on the purposes of Christ. So Paul took it very serious. I have it here in my notes this morning, this statement. Unity within the church of Jesus Christ is not optional, it's critical. It's critical. Let me, let me lay some groundwork for you uh, on that. Wherever there are a group of believers who are committed to live and serve Jesus Christ together in like-mindedness, you're going to find any challenge, any obstacle, any trial can be overcome. And every purpose of God can be fulfilled through that group of people. Psalm 133, let me show you this dynamic of unity here for just a moment as David wrote about it. It says, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 133, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant, how right it is when God's people dwell in unity together. Then verse 2, he gives us, now verse 2 and 3, he, he shows us two things that happen when, when a body of Christ followers are living in a spirit of unity and serving in a spirit of unity. He says it this way. He says, it's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's 
beard. Now get this idea. So when Aaron, the high priest, was anointed to be high priest of Israel, they took and they anointed him with oil. The oil was a special mix. There was nothing magical about the oil, but the oil was to set him apart. It was to represent the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God over Aaron. And then all of his sons who would be anointed as priests were the same. Now here at Victory Family Church, when we're not in COVID mode, we, uh, we offer opportunity for prayer. According to James 5, says any of you sick, you should call on the elders of the church there to anoint you with oil and pray for you. And the prayer offered in faith, the sick person will be healed. So we take time in our services to anoint with oil and pray. So when we do it, you, some of you have experienced that, we take a little, a little dab of oil, anointing oil, simply a representation or a, a, a picture of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity with us. And then we take a little bit of that and we just kind of dab it on the forehead right there. Now, when Aaron was anointed high priest, I mean, it was like, jarfuls, maybe even buckets. Notice it says, wasn't a little dabble do you on the forehead, Aaron. We're going to pour it over you. And it would run down over his hair. And, you know, uh, custom was the long, thick beard. And it would run down over his head and over his beard and, and down onto his robe. He would get a huge dose of anointing. And so David is saying, look, when, when, when believers are together, when people of God are in agreement together, it is so pleasant, it is so perfect and so right. It's like the anointing of God comes down, not in a little dab, but in an extreme measure. The power of God is manifest. So he goes on, he says, so it's like this anointing over Aaron. And then in verse 3 he says, it's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, we're falling uh, on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. So the second thing, first thing was anointing. Second thing is atmosphere. To have dew on top of Mount Hermon in Israel, which is one of the highest points, to have dew requires atmosphere, right? You've got to have the right amount of moisture in the air, temperature, and things like that, and it creates dew. The other unique thing about the atmosphere of Mount Hermon is that it is a snow-capped mountain many of the, the months out of the year in Israel. And when it starts to melt, it runs down out of the mountains and down into the valley and down into the region of uh, Jerusalem and brings refreshing to the dry, arid land. Now take the imagery that the poet David is picturing for us. There's this anointing when people of God stand in agreement together. There's an atmosphere that's created for a refreshing, and I would even say a reviving, where the people of God dwell in agreement. And so, when I quoted earlier as we prayed that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, he said, if they what? If they agree about anything, it will be done. This idea of a spirit of agreement in the body of Christ is so, so essential to the work of Christ uh, in every generation and, and particularly right now uh, in our own generation. Consider also how important this idea of agreement is. So we have Psalm 133 in John 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you here. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says these words. This is his high priestly prayer. This is his prayer before he's arrested in the garden to be taken to the cross. He's praying. He prays to the Father concerning himself. 
He prays for the disciples. And then he prays for us. Notice what he says, verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 20. He says, my prayer, and he's talking to the Father, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who believes this morning in Jesus? Jesus prayed for you. He prayed a prayer for you. He says, all those who will believe in me through who? Through the message of the apostles. Here's goes on in verse 21. That all of them may be, say it with me, one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul preaches more about salvation than any other topic. Secondly, he preaches more about unity than anything other than salvation. Salvation and unity are Paul's message. That's the prayer of Jesus. That we would be one, and in our oneness, in our agreement, in our like-mindedness as the people of God and the children of God, we would demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So it's critical. It's critical. It's not just optional. It's absolutely essential. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, I'm getting to Philippians 2, but Ephesians, I'm trying to lay some groundwork for the critical nature of unity. Ephesians 4, Paul says this, he says, Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So watch what we've laid here now. There's powerful anointing and an atmosphere for revival when a church, the church, lives, operates, functions, serves, ministers, and worships in unity and agreement. Jesus prays that the church would be one as he and the Father are one. You realize that Jesus and the Father thought alike. They served alike. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father. When you hear me, you've heard the Father. When you, when you see my attitude, you've seen God's attitude toward you. Jesus prays it. The Father answers it. God gives us a spirit of unity. He gives it to us. Paul would also tell us in Ephesians that we have all received one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. We all look different and we all came from different backgrounds. We will all go to different locations today and we won't all like the same restaurants we go to today. But we share one thing in common. We share one thing together. One Lord Jesus Christ. We have been baptized into him and we have his spirit living in us. And so this critical nature of unity, God gives us the spirit of unity, but then in Ephesians 4, Paul says, look, it's our job now to make sure we maintain that unity because the enemy's going to give lots of opportunities to break that sense of unity among the church so he can destroy the influence of the church. So Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Some of you are thinking, man, are we ever going to get over to chapter 2? Yes, we are there. We have now arrived to our main portion of the scripture this morning. Philippians 2. We're going to read the first four verses, but we're going to break it up a little bit. So we're going to read the first two right now. Philippians 2, beginning of verse 1, says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement of being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, 
If you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now, let me, let me help you understand something there. That idea when Paul says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, the, the literal translation of that is this, because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have love, because you have mercy and compassion, because these things have been given to you by Christ, be like-minded. So we have been given unity to start with. I'm going to give you two truths out of these four verses. The first truth this morning is this. The basis of our maintaining unity is Christ. The very basis for which we maintain unity is Christ. We may affiliate with a different political party from each other. We may think Chevy is better than Ford. And we can pray for you later, but I'm just kidding. We may think Logan's is better than Saltgrass. We may think homeschooling is better than public school. We may think this. We may think that. Whatever those things are, the basis for our unity is that we are one together in Christ Jesus. One Lord, one baptism, one spirit. That's the basis for how we worship. That's the basis for how we relate to each other. And it's that that overcomes any of our non-essential differences. So Paul says, if you have, we know it to really truly say because you have. So let me, let me just break this for you for just a moment. Because you have encouragement in Christ, Paul says guard unity. That's our part. God gave it to us. Now we must guard it. And particularly right now, we must be armored and prepared to guard the unity in the body of Christ because there are so many things floating around that everybody disagrees on or thinks differently on, and social media just exponentially tosses that into the air and lets it fall where it will, and all of us get sprayed upon in some form or fashion. And now more than ever. We have this encouragement in Christ. Can I share something with you about that word encouragement? It is the exact same word that Jesus used in John chapter 14 when he said, I'm going to send a helper, or in some translations, it's comforter. I am going to go back to the Father, and I'm going to ask him to send a helper, a comforter to come alongside you. It's the word parakletos. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus or when Paul says, look, if you have any encouragement in Christ, what he's saying is, if you know Jesus is walking with you and because Jesus is with you, be like-minded. Guard the unity of Christ in his church because he is with us. We have the encouragement of Jesus with us. And we share that together. Secondly, then, Paul would say, because you have comfort from his love, guard the unity. He says there that we have this, this comfort from the love of Jesus. And because we have that, we should guard unity. Disunity is a sign of a lack of love. 
If you take the definition of love out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude. It, is, it doesn't think ill of others. It does not keep score. It keeps no record of wrongs. Then you realize anything that breaks that is not love. So Paul says, look, because we have this incredible love from Jesus, let's guard unity. For the sake of his love for us, let's, let's guard the unity. Paul then goes on, he says, and because you have the Holy Spirit, because you have comfort from the Holy Spirit, guard unity. The word fellowship, he says, because you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That word fellowship is the word koinonia. It's a word that means the most intimate of fellowship. It's when we do life together. And so he says, because you have comfort and strength from the Holy Spirit living with you and doing life with you each day, guard unity. Don't let anything divide you as the church. And then he says, because you have mercy and compassion, guard the unity. As Jesus has given mercy and compassion to us, we guard unity by giving mercy and compassion to others. Now let's pick up in verse 2 again, and then we're going to read through verse 4. The basis of our unity is Christ. So verse 2 says, Then make my joy complete by being, one, like-minded, two, having the same love, three, being one in spirit and one of mind. Number four, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. So the basis of our unity is who? Christ. The basics, which is your second truth, the basics of our unity are these four elements Paul gives us right here, and they all have to do with attitude. Everybody say attitude. The basis of our unity is Christ. The basics of our unity have to do with our attitude, and attitude, my attitude, is always my choice. It is my responsibility, no one else's. Tom's not responsible for my attitude. I'm responsible for my attitude. You're responsible for yours, your choice. So Paul tells us what these attitudes are to look like. I'm going to break them into four. I'm going to combine them up into four. One is to be like-minded. He says, be like-minded. Make my joy complete. Be like-minded. Now, what Paul's talking about here is not necessarily doctrinal unity. That's a given. We have doctrinal unity because as a follower of Jesus Christ, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So doctrinally, we're there. If we're not there, we've got bigger issues. But we're starting on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to be like-minded in how we live out that gospel together. We're going to be on the same page of the gospel, if you will. This idea of like-minded, it's not about an idea that we, we have to agree on, on everything and we have to come down on the same side of, of everything. Doctrinally, yes. But what it does mean to be like-minded is that we, we share a passion together. We share a desire together. And that desire is to first and foremost and above anything else, we want to honor the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
So that brings us together in unity. It's not about anything else but the sacrifice of Jesus, and we want to honor him. So we choose together, whether we agree on politics or anything else, we choose together to serve him with a like-minded pursuit, and that is whatever we do, together we want to honor Jesus Christ. So he says, he says be like-minded. Jesus was sent and he came to do one thing. He said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's our basis of unity. To seek and to save the lost till Christ returns. Secondly, the second attitude is this, being Christ-like in our love. He says, now having the same love, keep unity. What kind of love do we have? Well, that word love used there, and I've told you this before, there's four different Greek words in your New Testament for the word love, and they all mean a different aspect of how love is demonstrated. But this word here is the word agape. It's the word unconditional love. It's been said agape love is the God kind of love. That when we didn't deserve love and when we didn't deserve mercy and when we didn't deserve grace and when we didn't deserve salvation and forgiveness for sin, God's love to us was unconditional. He loved us in spite of us. So Paul says, look, you're going to maintain unity. You're going to have to have the same love that has been given to you. You're going to have to demonstrate the Jesus kind of love. And, and what did Jesus' love look like? Can I, can I tell you this morning, Jesus, Jesus' love wasn't prejudiced. There was no prejudging by Jesus. You see, Jews didn't like Gentiles. Gentiles were okay with Jews, but they knew they couldn't get along because the Jews thought they were outcasts. Jesus came, and he reached out to the Jews, and he reached out to the Gentiles. And he offered salvation, and our own apostle Paul, who we're studying today, would tell us that he came. Jesus came. To minister to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. There was no prejudice in Jesus' love. Therefore, there can't be any prejudice and segregation within our love. We can't choose who we love unconditionally. Based on skin color, based on economic status, based on anything else. Our love is to be an unconditional love. There was no criticism in the love of Jesus. His love was compassion and mercy. There was no posturing by Jesus for power. He didn't love where he could get acknowledgement and prestige. In fact, the devil tried in the garden, right, to uh, tempt him with power, say, hey, look, why don't you just go ahead and bow to me and all this will be yours. No, Jesus wasn't after power that he could receive from loving anybody or doing any one thing. We can't allow our love to be decided by those who can do something for us. In fact, Jesus' love was without expectation in return. Jesus would want us to believe on him and be saved from our sin, but the Word of God makes it very clear to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. 
meaning with no guarantee that anybody on the face of the earth throughout time would ever give their heart to Jesus and receive his forgiveness because of his great sacrifice, with nothing expecting that anybody's going to do that, he did it anyway. So our love, our love is to be an unconditional love. Thirdly, Paul says your attitude has to be the same, being on mission with Christ. That we're here for Christ, we're not here for ourselves. Once we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we are born again, we're as saved as we will ever be. Now granted, he is in process of also changing us and transforming us from glory to glory. And we are in that process and must stay in that process. But the only reason we're still here is because Jesus has others that need to be redeemed. I mean, wouldn't it save us and him and probably our community a lot of heartache if once everybody got saved, we just went immediately to heaven? But there's a reason we haven't. He's not through here yet. He's just simply brought us into a position where he can use us to make ready, to make others ready. So Paul says, look, you've got to have this attitude that you're, you're on mission together. That there's no, no personal agenda. You see, the, the problem and the critical nature of unity in a church is that there are numbers of churches that are closed down today because there was division, strife, and splitting. Because there was a lack of agreement in many areas. And one of those was a lack of agreement on what does Jesus want us doing. There's churches today that are, that are meeting, but they're struggling and they're, they're, there's not much atmosphere or anointing there to bring revival because there's too much contention. I, uh, I had to, with another minister, sit into a church business meeting some years ago here in the area uh, to help referee, <laughs> basically, a very contentious church business meeting. And they started the business meeting with 45 minutes of worship beforehand. And everybody was dancing and swaying and hooping and hollering and shouting and raising their hands and really going after it. And then as soon as the worship was done, they did roll call for the business meeting. And then it all hit. Well, why aren't I on that list? Why? Who took me? And, it was just, and then we quickly realized this is why we're here, <laughs> to be an outside voice inside a very contentious situation. There's no glory for Jesus in that. Nobody wants to, to be a Christian if that's what the Christian faith is about. Nobody wants that kind of gospel. So Jesus says, look, Lord, Father, make them one so that people will know you sent me. Being of like mind concerning the mission of Christ. Not making our church experience about us. Man, and we live in this consumer society right now where everything is about what can you do for me? And how quickly can you do it? And in essence, truly, our association with any local church has to do with Jesus, where do you want me? And Jesus, what do you want me to do for you with that? Because I believe this. You start meeting other people's needs for Jesus, Jesus will make sure your needs are met every single time. You meet others' needs, Jesus will see that yours are met. 
So there's this idea of mission and purpose. And man, because we've had the COVID shutdown and we've had to do online and no one on campus services for so long, we had just started a series two weeks. I was two weeks in to a new series at that time concerning the church. And concerning the mission and vision, what God's called Victory Family Church to do in our community. And man, we were blowing and going. We got new t-shirts. <laughs> like it's all about t-shirts, right? But we got some new t-shirts. They're sitting in there. They're just waiting. It's not the right time. We're going to have to start all that back over when it's the right time again. But this idea of the mission and the vision, you, 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 you're here, you're, you're a part of Victory Family Church, maybe you're checking us out, but... but Every church has the same mission, and that is we're here with Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Now, every church has a different direction in which they may take to do that and different method in which they may do that. Let me just remind us here to, 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 to get us back on, on page together in the middle of all of this craziness that, that at Victory Family Church, we're about God's Word. We're about God's Word being the rule of our life. So yeah, we'll take times and seasons where we just go verse by verse and we, we break it open and we dig the truth out of it and we find out how does God want me living my life. We believe God's Word is the rule of our lives. We are set on honoring Christ with our worship, with our prayer, and with our serving Him. We're not here to, to build a name of a church. We're not here to build the name of a pastor. We're not here for any other agenda. We're here to honor Jesus in our worship, honor Jesus as we pray and call out as intercessors standing in the gap, and as we serve Him. Victory Family Church, some years ago we discovered that God had placed this church in this community almost 25 years ago now for the purpose of influencing the spiritual climate of homes and hearts in this community for Christ. In other words, to be the salt and to be the light. And over these 24, almost 25 years, we've, we've seen how he's put us and postured us into to a, to a mission of First of all, reaching out with the love of Christ. That to influence this community, we, we reach. We reach out with the love of Christ. We embrace people of, of every race and every creed and every tongue and every nation. And we embrace everybody with the love of Jesus Christ for the purpose of them coming to know Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. We reach out with the love of Christ and then we connect believers together in the body of Christ. We believe in this idea of unity. We believe in the power of iron sharpening iron and two being better than one and a cord of three strands not easily broken. And so we believe in connecting in life-giving relationships and that calls for unity and like-mindedness. We believe then in also growing and maturing in our faith in Jesus Christ. So we, we disciple, we, we grow, we, we open up God's word, we open up opportunities for serving, we do things that cause us to grow stronger and more mature in our faith in Christ. Where Paul says, hey, some of you guys have been on the bottle way too long, it's time to get to some red meat now. We, we believe in this idea that we grow from the point of our salvation daily being made more into the image of Christ. And then lastly, serving. 
How are we going to influence our community? Born-again believers who are in a connected relationship together, iron sharpening iron, growing in faith and, and maturity in Christ, we step out in our spiritual gifts and our talents and anointings and we serve. We serve each other and we serve our community. And when you say, man, I'm, I'm about that, then, then the Lord would say, hey, partner with Victory Family Church. Whatever church you, you find the Lord puts you in, and, and, and in our generation, too much of it right now is, is just what makes me feel good. Okay, I'm preaching now. Some of you call it a soapbox. I call it a platform. <laughs> but it, it's about our agendas. But, you know, it's not really, none of it's really supposed to be about us. It's our giving ourselves to, to Jesus, to bring honor to him and to, to reach the lost and then the fourth one, Paul says this, being committed to care for each other sincerely. He says, valuing others' interests and their needs above our own. That's where it gets tough. Paul's saying, look, in a, in a unified body, there, there's no place for selfishness. We are committing ourselves to each other on behalf of Jesus Christ. And, and it's so easy for, for us to become selfish and, and not even realize it. If you've ever thought, well, I, I don't need a life group because, uh, well, I just don't need a life group. Well, that's, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to diagnose a situation for you right now. That's called selfishness. Now, there's nobody more introverted. Well, there are some people more introverted than me, but I'm an introvert. People always, I tell them that they say, no way, pastor. You know what? I don't always get to be an introvert. But after I've interacted and had to play the part of an extrovert, I go take a nap. You can ask my wife. It happens. Because I'm drained. But I'm by nature an introvert. But you see, I, I, I don't get the leisure of saying, well, it's about me, Jesus. Don't make me talk to people. Don't make me have to show up in a, in a small group and do something for someone else. No, you know what small group is about? You know why you're needed there, whether you want it or not, or think you don't need it? Somebody in the group needs you. Somebody needs the experiences you've had in life with Jesus and without Jesus in time. They need you to help sharpen them. Jesus needs you to help communicate. Because they're, they're having trouble breaking through because of an issue, and, and you've dealt with that. And in an attitude of love and, and companionship and, and fellowship, you can speak into their lives. And Jesus can break through. But if you say, no, I, I don't need it, who's going to break through for them? <laughs> How about this one? I don't serve in the church because other people do that. Selfish. Right? You want the benefits of a quality experience on Sunday mornings, you know what? People have to show up. People have to make things happen to provide that. And there's a small few who show up hours before any of you show up to make this happen for you. What can you do? Where can you do it? You say, well, the nursery's not my gig. Okay, I'm not going to call you selfish on that one because it's not everybody's gig. 
But to make it unselfish, find your gig and plug in. Paul says, look, you want to maintain unity? you got to be on mission together. Man, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am that so many of you showed up yesterday, very last minute, because they realized they just had this influx the last two days for that field day. Daniel and Leah just had this huge influx. It doubled. Their attendance doubled within the last two days of this event coming on them. And they said, hey, pastor, can you help us find some people? <laughs> and so we put word out on our text messaging deal. And, man, I just can't tell you how pleased and proud I am as your pastor that so many of you very last minute gave up your Saturday, a hot, humid Saturday, to bless those kiddos. And there was a family that even came by that, that they told me this morning doesn't attend our church. They saw the kids out there having fun, pulled up and said, hey, could we be a part of this? Sure. Ran home, got them a white T-shirt so they could tie-dye it. They came back, and the kids got to have a, a fun time outside and hanging out with some other kids for a little while. Thank you for, for doing that, for being unselfish with your, your time and your, your Saturday. So Paul tells us it's all about our attitude. The basis is Christ. We, we, we seek to guard unity because of Christ and our value of him. And the basics are that we control our attitude, that we let our attitude be an attitude of agreement. So I want to go back for a moment in closing here. Psalm 133, verse 3, he says this. Look, when there's this atmosphere and this attitude, David says, For there the Lord bestows his blessings, life evermore. The blessing of God comes through a body of people who are in agreement together. And when we talk about Psalm 133 and anointing and atmosphere and blessing and revival, I can't help but go to Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. Because that's exactly what's played out. David's poetry and prayer is played out in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, you have 120 followers of Christ waiting in an upper room. They do not know what they're waiting for. Jesus said, wait till you receive power from on high. They do not know what that looks like. They do not know what to anticipate or expect. The only thing they have is Jesus said, wait. So 120 of them said, okay, let's go wait together. And they're in an upper room. And they're just worshiping. And they're just waiting. And they're encouraging each other. They're loving each other. They're helping build each other up when one's discouraged. You know, when's this going to happen? It took 10 days. But on the 10th day, the day of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended, the 10th day after he ascended, the Holy Spirit came down in a mighty, powerful way in that room. Why? Because they were, they were in a spirit of agreement. There was an anointing. They came into that room. What were they in agreement on? Jesus said, wait, so we're going to wait. Somebody stands up and says, well, I think we all got to do this. No, sit down because we got to wait. Well, who's with me? Let's take a vote. No, no, no. Sit down. We wait. There was an atmosphere and an, and, and, uh, an anointing that came. And what did it do? It brought the most incredible revival that is still moving Today, you are here because of the events that took place in that room 2,000 years ago. People by the thousands upon tens of thousands will be saved around the world today 
because of that revival. And you know where God decided to show up? Where there was an atmosphere, an attitude that he could pour his anointing out. Victory Family Church, I say, let that be us. Let this revival, I told you last week, two doors have opened over our nation now. The gates of hell have opened up and the gates of heaven. God's going to bring a great revival. At the same time, Satan is going to unleash everything to destroy it. I want to be a part of the revival. I don't want to be a part of the destruction. Let's be a part of that revival, Victory Family Church.